This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kevin Curtin, staff writer for the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Today we are going to talk about thrash metal, blacksmithing, independent film, and one of the most fascinating human beings I've ever met. We have two special guests today. Uh, writer Michael Tolan and filmmaker Bob Ray. Uh, to begin, welcome Michael Tolan, longtime Austin Chronicle contributor and also an archivist for the PBS show, Austin City Limits. Michael, thank you for coming in. What were you listening to on your ride over here? I was listening to the jazz guitarist Lenny Stern. Actually. All right. <laughs> Shout out Lenny Stern. So on the cover of this week's Austin Chronicle is Jason Tarpey. Jason is a blacksmith, a fantasy writer, a metal vocalist based out of Wimberley, Texas. His band Iron Age is in a way cult and in a way very well known in some circles. I've actually been in very far-flung places and people are, oh, you're from Austin? Do you know about Iron Age? So they have their obsessed people everywhere. Yeah. Um, let's listen, before we begin talking about them, let's listen to a little bit of Iron Age. Tolan, can you cue up what song this is going to be? Uh, this is the, uh, the sleeping eye of the watcher. It, uh, really ties into the, uh, the mythology that Jason has created that he writes about in his fiction in Iron Age and in his other band, Eternal Champion. This is the opening track. So, Tolan, you called The Sleeping Eye, which came out in 2009, a touchstone of Texas metal. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about its influence and standings and kind of the the annals of Texas crossover, thrash, and metal? Well, uh, probably the biggest name in Texas metal right now is Power Trip, and Power Trip pretty much wouldn't be doing what they were doing without The Sleeping Eye. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those seminal records that, had a small following at the time, but whose esteem has only grown over the years. You have Power Trip, you have Creeping Death from Dallas. Uh, the idea of 
combining thrash metal and hardcore isn't wasn't new at the time, but the idea of the way they did it and also the idea of including all of the the fantasy and the cosmic horror and all that influence from uh, what Jason has read over the years, that was something new. Right, because when we're talking about, if you say crossover thrash in Texas, the first thing that comes to my mind is DRI. Uh-huh. But this is absolutely nothing like DRI, no, right? No, like no. DRI, to me, is more on the spectrum of a punk band, right? right. And their influences of punk are a lot of different kinds of punk than what these guys incorporate into their music. Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, Jason's favorite band is Manila Road, who are as classic metal as you can get. But, you know, when you go to his his self-styled man cave in Wimberley, he has this incredible collection of old-school hardcore cassettes. And that's where the mixture comes from. I mean, you have the proto-thrash in Manila Road. You have all this... 80, all these 80s cassette hardcore bands, and you get Iron Age out of that, especially when you mix in, you know, his Robert E. Howard fandom and Moorcock and Lovecraft and all of that. Right. Uh, and two of those, right, are from Texas. Robert E. Howard was from Texas, yes. Uh, he spent a lot of time in Fredericksburg, though that's not where he was from. And Michael Moorcock lives in uh, Bastrop about Amazing. half the year. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, yeah, you brought a power trip earlier. Blake Ibanez, who's who's fr- the guitarist in that band, mm-hmm. he makes a general kind of character statement about Tarpy in this story, which is about his writing, his blacksmithing, right. all the things. And he just says, he's the real deal. Yeah. Going there, you know, you having heard his music, but then going into his, his um, amazing little interesting world, did you find that to be true, that he's the real deal? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is... He's one of those guys who took his his childhood love and has made it his life. I mean, he he started out with Howard and all that swords and sorcery stuff, and he writes about it in his music. He writes about it in the book he has coming out next year in the short stories he's published before, and he's a blacksmith. He actually makes swords and weaponry. He's turned that love into his life. And he's he's not some long-haired guy who wears armor and is his regular life or or thinks he's some barbarian warrior he's a regular guy but you know he took what he loved and he turned it into art and he turned that art into what he does to make a living absolutely and i want to ask you about the writing but first Mm -hmm. did you pick up any of those swords because like i always see people in 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 old you know in in movies set in medieval times and stuff just swinging swords but then like i was thinking like man that looks so heavy yeah and a, and a real i did not pick up any swords no but the the real thing would be heavy yes he was talking specifically about the sword from the conan the barbarian movie uh-huh. that someday he hopes to work himself up to making that but somebody would have to commission it cuz it would be very time consuming and expensive but that would be almost impossible for somebody who's not Arnold Schwarzenegger's size to actually pick up. Right. <laughs> you talk about the mythology a bit, and just from the jump, explain what uh, what Argonor is. Uh, that's the world he created. Uh, it's just a fantasy world. Um, it has several different little inlets, little towns in it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, and this, this is his word, mind you, uh, kind of a pastiche of typical swords and sorcery fantasy. It's vaguely based on the UK and uh, Northwestern Europe. And uh, it's a a land of your barbarians, your blacksmiths, your merchants, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, kind of overlooking all of this are these gods who have been 
outside of man's affairs, but are now starting to meddle a little bit. And the Sleeping Eye itself is a, a god called Breaker, who was on the cover of the reissue of the Sleeping Eye, by right. the way. That's who, who's depicted, who is uh, a sleeping god who is also insane. And when he wakes up, it's going to be very, very bad. Stuff's going down. And he's been yeah. asleep. Like, we're not talking about, like, the I'm hungover and I slept for 20 hours. He's been asleep for eons and right. eons, right? right? And he does, in the short story, The Vengeance of the Insane God that's in this book, Swords of Steel, he does, in fact, wake up. And it is very bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you're holding this this book right here. And it yeah. is, like, this looks like your quintessential, like, swords and sorcery right. type book. You know, it's right. got the, like, the exquisitely illustrated cover. It's kind of, like, back pocket size. Yeah. It's got the font that you want. Uh but you're you're a professional writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your take on his writing? I thought it was really solid. Um, it's really easy when you do pastiches to make it kind of a, a, a fanzine version. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got it down. I mean, it's, it was very well done. I mean, it's pretty typical in its story, uh, which is fine because that's kind of what this publisher DMR is about is doing a very traditionalist take mm-hmm. on swords of sorcery fiction, but no, it was well done. Uh, have, it, it, that's the only story I've read so far. I don't know how it compares to Mark Shelton's story or anybody else's. Sure. Uh, so, okay. Releases on the way. The, the sleeping eye came out in 2009. Right. Uh, that was, that was my, era of introduction to mm-hmm. them. You know, the previous record, remind me the title of the EP that came uh, before it? Oh, you, their album before it was Constant Struggle. Constant Struggle, right? Which was right? more traditional as hardcore. Hardcore, yeah. right? And 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 then when when uh, The Sleeping Eye came out, it was this whole new world. And that was when it really coalesced into something. And and, and I was I was blown away because it served like two different masters that, I've, that I like musically, right? So... So now we're fast forwarding 10 years in the future and it's getting a re-release, right? Yes. It was you, released last week. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, where that came out? And then also like the other kind of what the state of the band is now. You can still see them. They're not going to be playing at, uh, they're not going to be playing at, at Red 7 like they used right. to be or whatever. But. Yeah. They're not touring exactly, but they've, uh, they've been playing at least a couple of shows a year ever since uh, the guitar player Wade Allison moved back to Austin in uh, 2014 they did a couple of sold out shows in new york in august at hardcore hell um they have an album's worth of new songs just waiting time to record so once that happens they'll probably become more active uh, jason is not real interested in touring as such uh-huh. he would be he's more interested in making the shows special events so you'd probably see him at festivals yeah. And things of that nature. Yeah, they can yeah. play at a at a metal or hardcore festival and headline. Yeah. And then they Which can they couldn't do in their original original go round, but now they're in demand. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is incredible. And then also, you know, at the times when they do play in Austin, it's like, whoa, here's all these scary people who I haven't seen in the crowd. You right. know, like you're like Oh man, like all these people who who used to see it shows all the time and like it's like a reunion atmosphere and it's always pretty incredible. So, did he tip you off of any uh any Austin shows that might be coming up in in the 2019 or 2020? No, um mainly because uh they're current he's currently finishing an Eternal Champion record 
that's supposed to be out in the spring. Uh, and he said the next year is going to be focused on that, finishing mm-hmm. the record, finishing the book that goes along with the record. Uh, and then they'll do shows with EC. Right. So that's going to take precedence for a while. Of course. And Eternal yeah. Champion is also great. It's the kind of metal for somebody who wears one of those things where it's like a ring on your chest and then like the leather like mm-hmm. coming out. I don't know what those are called. <laughs> or maybe those big arm gauntlets, you right. know. Yeah. It's unabashedly epic and yes. like uh, – yeah. Epic fantasy metal, yeah. Fantasy metal, yeah. there you go. Uh, awesome. Any other takeaways from from the Jason Tarpy experience? What would you say about the man himself? Is he the same person? Like, Because I've been going to see him for years, mm-hmm. never sat down and talked to him. Yeah. Is he as intense as he seems on stage, or what is the... No. Uh, I, I One of the reasons I love this Crever, where you get this brooding stare with the hammer in his hand, he's actually one of the most cheerful people I've ever met. And he does have a way of psyching himself up for the performance so that it, it is just full-on, you know, roar. Yeah. Uh, but he's, he's fairly laid back and uh, clearly a happy guy. I mean, you know, to, to what I was saying earlier about how he's living his life the way he wants to, you know, I've, he's very comfortable, very at peace with the direction in his life. And, you know... Loves what he's doing. He loves having the hammer in his hand, which is a direct quote from the article. He loves making music. He loves writing this stuff. I mean, you couldn't get a, find a happier person, I don't think. <laughs> so, of course, he's scowling on the cover of the, of the right. Chronicle. <laughs> Grab a Chronicle. We, uh, we're happy and laid back people here, too, in the studio. But we're about to take a break and pause for some words from our underwriters. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Mr. Bob Ray. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicles show. We're in the studios of KOOP, also known as Co-op Community Radio. That's 91.7 FM if you're in Austin. And we're live streaming through coop.org. I'm your host, Kevin Curtin, subbing for the lovely Kimberly Jones. I'm a staff writer at the Austin Chronicle. Our next guest is Bob Ray. Bob is a filmmaker and a documentarian whose work includes the influential roller derby doc Hell on Wheels, as well as Total Badass, which follows the life of Chad Holt. On Saturday, 4 p.m. at AFS Cinema, they're holding a 20th anniversary screening of Rock Opera, which is your debut film. Let's go back to 1999. Tell me about where you were at, Bob, in your life when you were making Rock Opera. In my mind, like uh, the story takes place a little soon, a little earlier than that, probably the mid '90s. And Chad Holt, who's in it a little bit, was my next door neighbor. He came over one day when I moved into the apartments he was already living in with a bong and some weed, and we quickly became friends. If, if you're listening to this and you don't know Chad, the story uh, that's in this week's issue it's called "The Last Provocateur," and it's a beautiful story written by Kevin right here. Thank you. Uh, okay, so so is that to say that? Your lifestyle there. This is West Campus, yeah. mid '90s. Uh, UT students to some degree, and non-UT students. Yeah. Well, so he local. came up from Lake Jackson, which is sort of a satellite burb of uh, Houston, uh-huh. and, uh, and he was sort of the the core of his group of friends. And he's and he sort of led this you know this this flow of people of misfits and you know, people who wanted to escape sort of this sort of conservative place and find somewhere more accepting of their lifestyle. And so he, he was the kind of the core of this group of people. And I came from South Austin, you know, blue collar. And, uh, and I had my core group of friends. And there was just this sort of overlap of just weirdos, of South Austin weirdos and these Lake Jackson, you know, refugees looking for somewhere, you know, that they could live how they wanted to live. 
And, uh, and it was just a good confluence of weirdness and stuff. And, and, you know, Chad was dealing pounds or quarter pounds of weed. And so that was convenient for all of us who were yeah. smoking weed. In the, in the movie, it's repeatedly, almost every weed deal is, can I get a quarter? Yeah, man, $25. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like back. terrible, terrible compressed Mexican mule brick weed, you know. But also, like, at the time, you know, he was selling ounces for, you know, 40 bucks in the mid-late 90s, which was a pretty good deal. Of course. <laughs> and, and there's so many, there's like the, the bongs per frame ratio of this movie is <laughs> off the charts. But at the same time, like it's one of those movies where it's like the actors for the most part, some of the main actors are regular people, not traditional actors. Right. So you kind of feel like on the same level of them. But then in the movie, things get really hardcore. Yeah. Like it escalates at some point. And I think, as a viewer, for me, it's like, well, I already felt like that was me. And now, like, things have really gotten deadly and yeah, life-threatening. And, and Well, I just wanted to make, like, there's not stories told from this community, you know? And, and I wanted it to be an interesting story, like a caper story or something that the stakes would be constantly raised and people's lives would be in danger, which isn't, isn't normal for this kind of community. I mean, there's drug deals gone bad and there's people robbing each other and crap like that in real life. But I, I wanted it to... To have like a, a, a feeling of a, of a regular sort of caper, double-crossing kind of movie, but set in the world that we grew up in. And everyone in the movie, Chad played a guy named Tad. You know, uh, Curtis Mackler played a guy named Burtis. You know, so everyone kind of played a version of themselves with the exception of two people that we did an open casting call and we cast two actors. And that was the, the guy named Jarvis was Paul Wright and then uh, the guy named Paco. And because uh, I didn't, I didn't know people to play those parts. Well, you know? yeah, and Jarvis is an older character, yeah. you know. So right, and he's, he's kind of like age. a wannabe tough guy, right? Hick sort of ish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was okay? So this is independent cinema in Texas in the '90s. What was it like trying to put out a feature as a young independent filmmaker at that point. I'm sure things are a lot different than they are right now, which is still hard. Yeah. Um, well, it was, it was just harder to make a movie back then. You know, you didn't have the tools. Digital tools weren't available. You could, I mean, if, unless you shot it on like high eight video, which nobody's going to show that. It looks like garbage. There's really no exhibition avenue for that kind of thing. And I was already making narrative films through the Austin Cinemaker Co-op, which was a super eight film group. And so I was already sort of versed in the filmmaking component of it to a certain degree. And before that, making skateboard videos. But I wanted to make narrative stories and tell stories about communities that were sort of underserved, which the one I was in, like, there's not many punk rock movies, you know, that are sort of out there or punk rock, whatever you call it. Right. I wanted to put my favorite bands and my favorite drugs and my friends in a movie and but make it a story that was hopefully interesting to people beyond that. So right. just getting it made and shooting on film was you know, cost prohibitive. It was uh, laborious. You know, you need a lot of lights to get a good exposure on some of the film stocks because of the speed of the film. And then, you know, uh, exhibition was still tough at the time. And because it was sort of a cult movie kind of thing by design and not designed to be commercial at all, uh -huh. like I didn't reverse engineer it from a point of view of like, how can I sell this movie? How can I find a distributor? I was just like, screw it. I'm going to make the movie that I want to make and just see what happens. Right. So, you know, festivals, They'll screen it after after a good festival run. Um, I wasn't sure what to do with it. So part of the, the motivation of the protagonist, uh, a guy named Toe, is he wants to get his band on the road and do a tour. His band's called Pig Poke. Pig Poke, which was a real band that I was in with him. Back oh, okay. We played a couple okay. of shows. We played on Emo's small stage. is like our biggest accomplishment. Right. On a Tuesday. Um, 
<laughs> but he wanted to get his band on the road, so I figured why not book a film tour, much like a band tour. And so me and Jerry, who played tow, we piled into my little Toyota two-seater car and drove for three and a half weeks and hit 30 cities out west and did little screenings and some were fantastic we had a great showing in san francisco some were like two people there yeah. and then we're like hey one of you two people can we sleep on your couch right because you know, we have nowhere to go but it was great they're you like know? are you like you are in this yeah. film no, you can so, no but, but toe no <laughs> yeah, exactly. but uh that was a lot of fun, you know, and we got reviews and a lot of stuff. And, a lot and, of and Richard Linklater has a great quote, I think, on the DVD version of the movie that says something like, uh, if everybody who... If every pot user goes to see your movie, I think you'll have a hit on your hands. Right, yeah. That was a very clever... <laughs> yeah, motivating pot, pot users, though. So, so it's showing on Saturday, uh, and I understand we're going to get to see the film and then on the big screen, and then there's going to be a panel. Yeah, so... Uh, Barnabas Cantor, he was one of the co-founders of the Austin Cinemaker Co-op. He was the producer of the film. He's going to be there. Uh, Curtis Mackler, who was the musical director mm -hmm. on there, he's going to be there. And then uh, Jerry Don Clark, who played Toe, he'll be there. And uh, he and I haven't spoken. Uh, we had a phone call yesterday. Besides that, we haven't spoken in well over a decade. This, that is so amazing to me. And I think that anybody who... Who's seen the movie is going to, and, and you're like, oh, Toe's going to be there? Yeah, because okay. we, we did a little small, like, 10-year screening, and he, we had, Jerry and I had already had a falling out at that point. Yeah. And so, I mean, Jerry had, I don't, it's sort of public knowledge that he had some sort of run-ins with the law, and he had some addiction issues, and, uh, and we parted ways. Uh, he was a dear friend of mine and a roommate. I wrote the movie around him. You know, right. he was a bandmate of mine. He was a roommate of mine. Uh, we skated together since he moved from Spain as a military brat into Austin. Like, we had been really close friends. And just sort of addiction will tear all kinds of things apart, including friendships. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with us. Well, I'm glad you guys are going to work through it publicly tomorrow. Dude, he was telling me stories on the phone yesterday. There's like, dude, you got to write this down, man. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, he could just, I could just hand him the mic on the Q&A and just go, his is going to go <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah. Uh, okay. Speaking of fascinating characters, uh, you know, in 2009, Total Badass came out. Yeah. That was about Chad Hull. Chad died uh, in August after having rectal cancer, which he, he wrote about extensively in, in the magazine that he published every year, which was called Whoopsie. Um, and there was a roast of Chad Holt, which was like a living funeral slash wake thing that only compounded his legacy, you know, yeah. in, 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 in May at the Lost Well. Oh, and, uh, and just an utterly fascinating person, but the, and, and very smart and, and, a very brave performer in a lot of ways, but he was going through an interesting set of challenges and circumstances at the time you made total badass around him. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, um, well, as a filmmaker, I, I, I wanted to, as a storyteller, I want to make movies or tell stories and cinema's the poison of choice for me. And so when uh, I was looking at a crossroads of what do I do next, and Chad's right there, and Chad's been interesting as hell my entire life, um, or ever since I've known him since my, my entire adult life. And, uh, and I just felt there was a movie there. So, uh, and, of course, Chad, when I talked to him about it, and he's like, oh, I've been waiting my whole life for you to make a movie about, or someone to make a movie about me. Of course, this was just fate for him. So we went and did a little test scene where – he breaks up some weed and I made a short out of it. And he takes it to deliver to Meshbane, you know, at to trophies. Matt, to Matt Meshbane, who's a person who a lot of people know. Yeah, he's a character too. And of course, his car dies on the way there and he forgets the weed. And I was just like, yeah, okay, let's make a movie together. The most, the most like Austin slacker thing ever is 
the car dies and he just says something like, well, it'll just sit here until I sell it on Craigslist. Yeah. Like it doesn't, you know, it's not the same reaction you might have when, you're, when your car dies. Right. Yeah. Well, Chad, I mean, this, this is reflected in his health too. He's never changed the oil in any car he's ever owned. Mm-hmm. So like he doesn't do anything and go get preventative care or anything like that. He doesn't have checkups. Yeah. He's just like, wait, you got to change the oil? Like it's in a revelation. Like someone, he didn't, he just didn't know. But uh, so, you know, Chad's got an interesting backstory, but d- during the course of filming, as you asked a moment ago, um, things happen to him. So longitudinal filmmaking is you embed yourself, uh, like Hoop Dreams is a great example of that. You embed yourself with a group of people or a person and, and you expect things of interest will happen because of where they are in their life and who they are. And Chad was one of those kind of people. Um, we all knew about, he bootlegged the wristbands for South by Southwest several years ago and was on probation, got a felony charge, spent some time in jail, paid a big fine. And so he had six months of probation left. And so I, I was like, that'll be kind of a narrative arc. That'll, that'll give us some structure you right. know, to hang it on. Whether or not that is in the finished film, that'll give us, me as a filmmaker, I need a security blanket of like, there's something here, right? And, but during the course of events, um, his children were living with his, uh, their mother and their home was foreclosed upon in the foreclosure crisis. And Chad had to sort of shift gears and, and take them into his house or find a house that was suitable for them and become this sort of stay at home dad, if you will. Meanwhile, he's selling drugs still. He's in a band where, you know, he flips from the stage into trash cans as, as part of his performance. And he's publishing an insane magazine. Yeah, with these crazy stories that you know, most people would wouldn't even dare to tell because they'd be embarrassed or humiliated or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he just embraced it. And I always thought, and I thought that was interesting. It's this crossroads of like, what do you do when you have to make a choice? Like, do you have to make a choice? Do you have to abandon one to embrace the other? You know, to t- to be a parent. You know, can you maintain this um, this path of, of pursuing both things? And to his credit, he did. He you know maintained you know his artistic motivation and drive, but also took really good care of his kids and yeah. had a really good connection with them throughout the rest of his life. And I thought that was pretty cool. And there was actually a little scene on the end that I, I was real torn about on the end of Total Badass to leave on or take off. And at the end, Chad, you know, he's winking and smoking at the camera again, you know, and you're like, oh, he's still that guy too, because you just saw him with his children. Right. But after that, he goes back to his son Shay's graduation from middle school. And he's just there like a proud father watching his kid go across the stage, you know, and they're all hugging. It was a really touching scene. And I, and I, and I was like, do I, do I put the heartstrings on there? Or do I put the like funny punch on the end of it? Yeah. And I'm still torn to this day, like <laughs> if I should have included that or not. The... Uh, the movie is heartwarming in the most devious way, and I seriously recommend that there's there's very few things that I would recommend to everybody. Like there's there's stuff that I recommend if you're interested in it. There's stuff that I wouldn't recommend to anybody. Total Badass is a movie I would recommend to your grandmother, to my neighbor, to anybody because it is some of the most human stuff that you can see on film. I was and, attached to two warnings with it. One, I didn't, I didn't recognize this when I did it, but Chad is doing a lot of cocaine in the movie. That's true. He's on probation and he can't smoke weed. Like he wants to smoke weed every day, all day right, long, right. but he can't because he has a urinalysis and cocaine leaves your system to which I'm like, how the hell is cocaine a substitute for weed? Like those are nowhere even near one another. And he was doing a lot of it where you only hear my voice in the movie once or twice. And one was like expressing concern about how much drugs he's doing. Cause he's popping pills and doing coke. Um, there's a, there's a sequence where I gave him the camera and said, you know, so Chad, Chad can take control of the movie. And I like that about it in the narrative push and pull of the film. Um, the reins are given to Chad. And of course the first thing he does is films 
you know, right. and then he subsequently films a lot of sex in bathrooms all across, you know, downtown Austin. And he films himself doing mountains of cocaine. Right. So one thing I noticed in screenings is that people with addiction issues, that could be triggering for them, you know, okay. which I didn't consider. And I was like, oh, crap, I didn't, I'm not trying to do that to anybody. You yeah. know, I mean, I've known a lot of addicts over the course of my life as well. So there's always sort of two caveats. Like there, there's a lot of cocaine abuse in it mm-hmm. and there's some graphic sex in it. So That's true. Uh <laughs> I still recommend it to everybody. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to uh, I want to thank my guest today, filmmaker Bob Ray, who will be at AFS 4 p.m. on Saturday, and Michael Tolan, who has the cover story in this week's Chronicle. Congratulations to both of you guys on your recent successes, and thank you for coming into the Austin Chronicle radio show on Co-op. Let's hear some of that exit music written by myself. <laughs>